here's what I'll say, because you guys know me, we're a baseball family, so we'll start with that. Um, I need somebody to do me a favor. If you come over to our house most nights of the week, now we had MLB TV at one point in time, but then YouTube TV dropped it, and that was a bit of a bummer. So we just have to watch whatever networks carry. Um, but if I asked somebody who follows baseball to name who is perhaps the most globally sensational baseball player right now, what would you say? You say Altuve? Yeah, Homer. Okay, I get it. Appreciate that. Who was over here? Yeah, Shohei Otani, the guy who can win a Cy Young and a batting title. Like they're like the, he's like an enigma. The only guy since Babe Ruth who has done it. And it's unreal because like he'll pitch and hit three home runs in a game, like and shut out the other team. It, it's really weird. And he's on the Angels who always lose, so that's a bit of a bummer for him. <laughs> Two best players on the planet on the same team, and they can't even be 500 most of the time. But they do have Otani and Trout. Before Otani, it was Trout, best player on the planet. Now it's Shohei. And, I mean, they say it's showtime. He has all these phrases. Just, just international stud. One thing, being um, Japanese, is like many, and you see this with Jordan as well, who we'd all say is probably the second best player, uh, third, Altuve. I don't know where you put uh, Jordan on that. But very often, as stipulated even by their contracts, is they have translators. They have translators so that they can... It's not, it's not that they speak no English. It's they have translators to help them acclimate, get comfortable in a culture, understand the language. And at times when you're being asked a lot of questions very frantically in English, you need somebody who can help put it into the vernacular that you need. And so it's not uncommon. And baseball is the sport in that regard that has the most non-native English speakers in it. And so you see it's not uncommon to be watching a baseball game or be watching a post-game or a pre-game or a pre-recorded interview, and there are three people. There's the interviewer, there's the player, and there's the translator. And as you, if you watch baseball, you're just used to it. You're used to watching the translator and the baseball player interact, and that translator serve as the go-between between the message and the messenger and being what is needed. And it's a pretty cool thing to see. Anytime I see that, I, do, I, I, like, I get a little weepy, because it's just so cool to me when people can speak more than one language, and most of us in America don't even know what that's like. And so that's cool. But I just love when you see what somebody's saying, how they communicate it in their language, and then how somebody takes that and then flips it. It's like when you use Google Translate, it doesn't actually give you like the, it doesn't give you the nuance of the language. It just kind of takes the words and gives you the words back. And so you can get pretty far, but you need somebody who understands even that dialect or that version of Spanish and able to, com to be able to communicate effectively and in a way that gives the player comfort. We always need, the world has always needed it, we always need clear communicators who understand culture and context to share accurately any message, any message. And very often, if you open up the instructions for something and you have the English version and the Spanish version and the French version, I doubt many of you are like, let's try to put this together by reading the French version. 
unless you speak French. You don't go there. You go to the English version. Some of you, Mike, maybe this is you. Some of you just go, you know what, forget it. We're going to try and put it together without the instructions. Like, yeah, I can figure it out. I have a kid who's like that. He's like, I don't need instructions. I'm just going to do it. Uh, we were watching the Lego movie just the other day, and uh, I, we have both an Emmett in our house. He's like, what are the instructions? And a master builder who's like, I don't need instructions. Watch this. You're like, I don't, I might kill somebody. What does this have to do with where we are in a series called Sent and Senders of Theology of Missions is just this, is that we need to see God's response to the problem that we have created. We need to see how God moves toward people and the way in which he moves toward people. And the one thing that I hope we can see today is that the way God has always responded to the problems that we have created is consistently. He has always done the same thing. We might think of it only now, only sounds, it sounds belittling. It's really not. We only might think of it in the revelation of Jesus, but that is the supreme revelation of what God has always been doing. But the pattern of God moving toward people and communicating clearly has always existed. And so if you were with us that first week and we talked about being made in God's image and how being an image bearer is bringing God's benevolent care into the whole world, his benevolent character and his kindness, that we make order from chaos and we design and we build and we create. And that was that first idea. But we now exist in this world where it doesn't happen like that. And even when we build things, they break. Things don't work the same way. And we try our best, we pollute or we destroy and we mess it up. So many professions even now exist because sin exists. Because sin exists. That's why you have law enforcement. That's why you have lawyers. That's why you have physicians. We love physicians because they can help us get better. But the very fact that that profession exists demonstrates that something's wrong with people. That bodies break. And so we're trying to mitigate against what it is to live in a fallen world. We have all these professions that would not exist. Door locks would not exist if it weren't for sin. You wouldn't need to lock your doors. You wouldn't be concerned about it. When your spouse went out at night, you wouldn't be worried about where they were or who they were seeing or anything like that. There would be absolute trust. We don't have that world. We live in this destructive, fallen, sin-wrought world. And so Jesus comes in and and he makes it right by being the first fruits of the resurrection for us. It's a promise of the resurrection that's to come, the new heaven and the new earth in which all who have placed their faith in Jesus will be able to dwell and worship by being who God had created for them to be, which is image bearers without any sin, able to cultivate and create, not just sit in services where one person preaches a sermon, but to be able to live their lives in the fullest expression. That's what we get. But in order to be able to enter into that world, we have to see what God has done to right the wrong, how he's always moved toward his creation. So, we'll move through it. And this is one of the only times a year where I'm going to just overload you with Bible verses. You don't have to flip to all of them. You don't have to do it. You just stay with me, okay? Just stay with me. They'll be on the screen. If you want to flip, you can. But by the time you flip there, we might have moved on. So, we're going to see a consistent pattern in the way God has handled us. 
the way he's moved toward us. We've already talked about the problem of sin. We'll talk about that just a little bit more. The solution God provides, and then what do we do about it? In fact, the reading from the morning is maybe the most uh, memorable for many. Genesis 12, really 1 through 3, but I wanted to bring it all the way through Abram's obedience to what God had put him to and how it ended with sacrifice and worship. But of course, we have a problem. We've already talked about it. Because of sin... We can't, we can't do or accomplish what was God's original design, which is to reflect him in all the earth. We just can't get it done. We've already seen this. We frustrate these plans because we're caught in sin. <clears throat> when we try to accomplish it in our own strength, we build things like Babel, cities that exist. For what reason? Right, to try to ascend to the heavens, to try and look out as, a, as somebody who's afraid of who might come, to try and reach the gods, whatever that might be, that's man's attempt at doing what God has put before him without the help of God. God had already given a commission. He'd already said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he said it again after the flood. It didn't just exist in Genesis chapter 1, but this is what God, he wanted his people to do. And so when we attempt it in our own strength, where does it end? It ends in failure. You might feel this way even in your marriages at times where you're like, every time I try to fix it, I break it. Every time I try to go after something or make it right, I just screw it up more. Well, you're a sinner and you're married to a sinner and great things happen when you try to do things in your own strength in that environment, right? Like it's like, I'm going to try real hard and and I'm not going to receive it. Like all this back and forth, it begins to happen. We see it in every relationship that exists. You go, I'm not going to exasperate my kids. You dads, I'm not going to exasperate my kids. I'm going to love them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to, make, I'm going to end this day. They're going to feel great about who they are. And then like, you wake up and they ask you something that you didn't want them to ask you. And you're like, why do you always ask me that? And you've ruined your day. Because you're contending with your own heart while other people try to contend with their own hearts. Fixing a problem that fundamentally you can't fix. So, so that's the main problem. What does God do? Yes, God sent his son. As we look back, we see that. But God has always sent. God has always sent himself or his messengers to people to bring them back. This is the consistent pattern. That God has moved toward his creation to bring them back into a relationship with him. And we need that. We need people who will move toward us. We can start very quickly in the garden after they have sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we see this. They heard the sound of the Lord God. This would be Adam and Eve after their sin. They were walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I tell my kids this. Our sin makes us hide. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord of God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? You see that? From the beginning, when sin had entered into the world, when deception was there, and man and woman are trying to hide from God because they know what they've done, who steps in and goes, where are you? Like God didn't know. Right? Like God didn't know. He was unaware. Like, please help me. I'm, you know, I'm, I can't see you. Like a game of hide and seek. It's not that. God fully knew where they were. But God moves toward 
sinful people. He moves toward them because they need both that sin exposed, but they also need to receive his grace. They need his mercy. And they're not going to just come running and looking for it. In fact, our disposition is to hide from it. We saw that in Romans 1 last week. We are going to suppress. We're going to hide. We're going to distort. We're going to lie. We're going to squeeze. We're going to miss it. We're going to find new ways to worship because dealing and contending with our hearts is the hardest thing to do. But God says, where are you? You can do this in multiple ways. You can say that God then also went to Noah and gave Noah a a commission to build to pr- build an ark to preserve a people. But as we get into Genesis 12, because Genesis 1 through 11 kind of stands uniquely, and then Genesis 12 zeroes in on a family, and we saw in Nick's reading of it, God moving toward Abram, who becomes Father Abraham, who has many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I wanted them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. So the Lord said to Abram, I want to just stop, stop there. You leave it, leave it on the screen. But the Lord said to Abram, if you're in Genesis 11, and then you move into Genesis 12, you really, besides the fact that 11 ends a little bit with Abram's family, you, you're just brought into this relationship with a dude named Abram. Like, that's it. At the end of 11, Terah takes Abram, his son, and they go somewhere. But now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Abram, if you don't know this at this point in time, was an idol worshiper. He wasn't faithful to Yahweh. He wasn't listening to the voice of the one true God. He was living his life, worshiping his idols like his family did before him. And what happens? God moves toward him and speaks to him and gives him a new direction. And that's when he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He says what he'll do. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in the book of Galatians and speaks about how this is Jesus The seed, the one through whom the world is blessed. But what did it take? It took God moving toward Abram, communicating with Abram in a way that Abram could understand. You could come to me right now and give me the most stunning encouragement you could. Like, like, the, the, kind, like the, the words of encouragement that would have just lifted me up and sent me out of here flying high, feeling really good about myself, giving me at least another three weeks of awesome feels. You could do that. And if you had all of those words and you came to me and you said them in Arabic, it would be worthless because I wouldn't be able to receive them. I wouldn't be able to understand them. I wouldn't be able to comprehend them unless I had a translator. Notice how God comes to Abram, and as the text shows us, in a way that Abram understands what he's saying and can respond to it. The way that God speaks and the way that God declares is not confusing. So he goes to Abram and he gives him a commission. Commissions are all throughout the Bible. Gives him a commission, and Abram responds to it and begins to go to a land that God will show him. 
If you know the story, you know that Genesis kind of moves along, and as it moves along, we actually end the book in Egypt. Abram's long gone, now he's Abraham. He's not there anymore. We are following these sons of Israel. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had a lot of kids. We're following along these stories. We end the Joseph narrative, and we land in Egypt. And then the book of Exodus begins with a story about a pharaoh or a king who didn't know Joseph. Now hundreds of years have passed from the time God gave a promise, and God had continued to go to Abram, Abraham the entire time of his life and encourage him and remind him and point him and nudge him and, and strengthen him and strengthen his faith to let him know that he was going to do the things that he said he was going to do in Genesis chapter 12. But you end Genesis thinking, well, we got a guy in, you know, like he was in prison now he's ascended. We have his family who are, have some land in Egypt. That's not the land that God was going to show them. Now they're in a different land. And we begin the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, with this Pharaoh who rises up who doesn't know Joseph. And as he doesn't know Joseph, we also are introduced to a baby named Moses. And Moses' mom gives birth, and they don't the, the midwives of Israel, don't kill the children. Pharaoh wants these children dead. But the midwives don't kill the children. And put, uh, Moses is put in a basket and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and he grows up in Pharaoh's household. Interesting that he grows up in Pharaoh's household because what would he be able to speak? Pharaoh's language. He wouldn't just be speaking like a Hebrew. He would be speaking like an Egyptian. He would be trained, both in the religious culture of Egypt, but also in the language of Egypt. While he still knew, because even his mother was in given, uh, he was given back by Pharaoh's daughter to wean him and raise him as a baby, and then she would give him back. And so we have this guy Moses, who then after killing a, killing a guy, runs off, and he lands in Midian. Exodus chapter 3. He's just a shepherd watching over his father-in-law's flocks. He's you know, in the family business that he is married into. And we read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, when Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet was not consumed. Moses was minding his business. He had moved on. It had been decades. He's now living his life. He's an adult. He's married. He's in the land of Midian, and he's there. And what happens as he's just tending the flocks off on the corner? The Lord appears. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord appears. And we know from this bush that the angel or the messenger or the bush, however you want to land, speaks. Speaks in a way that Moses would understand. And gives Moses yet another, as we've already seen, commission to go before Pharaoh and to deliver God's people. A year and a half ago, I don't know, four years ago, 100 years ago, we went through Exodus and we got to see this in kind of granular form as Moses goes before Pharaoh and the plagues happen and Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he hardens his heart and back and forth. And then we have 
the Passover, and God gives specific instructions regarding the Passover so that all who put the blood on the doorposts, the firstborn would not die, but those who did not, which was basically every Egyptian household, would die, the firstborn would die, and there was great weeping, and the Israelites run out of town, and God saves them. And what did it take? Even if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, it takes God through an angel, a messenger, speaking to Moses in a way that he would understand, dealing with his weaknesses, dealing with his, but I don't know how to speak, but I don't know what to do. Every time, you know, Moses was like, he was like us, wildly insecure about parts of his life. And when he was being asked to do something, didn't feel like he was the guy to do it. And what does God do but even meet with him there and speak with him there and give him the encouragement that he needs and the nation is saved. What we see again in the saving of Israel from Egypt is that God moves. God moves and God speaks. God moves and God speaks. God moves and God speaks. And he's always moving toward people. This summer, in just a couple of weeks, we will start the book of Judges. That will be our summer series, the book of Judges. And one thing that you'll see in the book of Judges, it'll be in the first Sunday Uh, And it'll probably be our reading for that Sunday, so you're just going to get preview of coming attractions. But when the nation doesn't obey the command to drive out the other nations from the land, when they don't fully obey it, and that's what Judges 1 is showing us, it kind of starts pretty good and then very quickly ends rather poorly. And then in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, here comes an angel again. And the angel delivers a message. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you from Egypt. Oh, look at that. There's another reminder. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, again, speaking, hearing, responding, spoke these words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called on the name of the Lord, or they called the name of that place Bochim, weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Again, Somebody had to come to people in their sin and confront them with their sin and even deliver the consequences of their sin. Since you have done this, just so you know, now they're going to be a snare. They were given the command and expectation to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, but pretty quickly they're like, this is hard. Maybe God didn't mean all. Maybe he meant some. And maybe, maybe it's actually better if we just enslave them in the land. And then we have kind of forced labor there. That would be better, right? That's not what God said. That's not what God commanded. That's not what God expected. And when God's people are acting in a way that is unbecoming of God's command, God confronts. He confronts them with their sin. He makes it rather clear. Again, we know it's clear because they had some kind of response, even if their response was perhaps half-hearted, because they continue for now 
decades and decades and decades and decades to live in these cycles of momentary obedience as led by a judge and then disobedience and absorbing, absorbing the gods of the lands around them, and it just continues on and on and on. I'll give you another one. Now, we are going to fast forward some here in the history of the nation, but this is one that we're very familiar with. If you know, I mean, we know like four passages in Isaiah, and this is one of them. Like the rest of them are like, I don't know. Does Isaiah have more than like 53, 52 at the end, Isaiah 6? Like that's kind of what we know and whatever other things we might read around Christmas time. But as we know, the prophets of the nation during the kingdom, and if you're in our Bible plan right now, then you're getting lots of prophets. You're getting lots of rebuke, lots of please return, please restore, and God is always sending people But in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, we hear this, and I heard the voice of the Lord, this is Isaiah, saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. That there needs to be a message delivered by a messenger and God is sending people to deliver this message. He does this even uh, to, for Isaiah, even as Isaiah's ministry is rather unfruitful in its contemporary nature. And the Lord lets him know, just want you to know, this won't work. But they still need a messenger. They still need words. They still need this to be declared. Let's fast forward a little bit more. This is the one we've probably been waiting for. The full representation of God so that we understand what it looks like to walk rightly. This is what we have gone through over the past year plus in the Gospel of John. But very early on in John, we hear this. John speak of Jesus, the Word, in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. We looked at that word. If you remember, the uh, word became flesh and dwelt among us. That idea of encamping or or making, pitching his tent. The imagery that I believe John was getting at in that was the imagery of a tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is where you would go to worship and recognize and see the grandeur of God. And what John is, is giving us clues about here is that in the incarnation of the word, the Son, what we have been given is the fullest and truest representation on what God is like. We see him, and in the incarnation, we actually get to see God fully on display as man. And we need this kind of example, and we've needed this kind of sending because Us and our sin and our grossness and our arrogance and our ugliness and our lies and our just all the stuff that you probably even have done in the past four hours. The thoughts you've thought and the ways you've lived and the frustrations you've had and the laziness demonstrated or the, you know, the little fights you have on the way to church. I remember one I had many, many years ago where like uh, Courtney almost got out of the car on the way to church. That's how hot this argument was. Um, like in the middle of an intersection. You ever done that before? Yeah, good, good one, Pastor. I wasn't on staff at a church this time where our marriage is much better than that now. Don't do that. But I mean, we were in it. And we were probably a mile from the church building. Like just like 
I mean, the door opened. I was like, you can't. We're like, we're on the feeder road of 635 in Dallas. You can't, you can't get out right now. I was that unpleasant to be around that you would have rather gotten out of a moving car than stayed in it. The idea that there can be anybody, anybody, perfect, it's just beyond us. Because all we know is us and each other. And if you're like 30% decent human, like you're going to get put on the shelves as an example of a decent human. Like, like, hey, like they're honestly miserable a lot of the time, but that 30% is pretty sweet. Like, like, like that's, that's for us. Like that, those are the people that we idolize. It's like, hey, they're real nice. They gave a lot of money away. Terrible human, but generous. So like that counts for something, doesn't it? We have no view, no understanding of what perfection is like until the incarnation. And then we're given Jesus. And Jesus comes, in a sense, with the same commission Isaiah had to speak to a bunch of people who wouldn't receive him to declare truth about God and his kingdom and sin and salvation, to reveal that forgiveness has come for all who believe. He dies, he's buried, he rises, and he ascends. But what do we have again? It is so serious that God is no longer sending angels. God is no longer sending men. God is not having donkeys speak. God is no longer sending prophets. God is sending himself. That's how loving he is. That's how serious of a problem it is. No longer will you send delegates to address the issue. But at some point in time, you show up. And anybody who works in like a corporate world, when the boss shows up, Right When the meeting is serious enough that they show up into the room, like, oh gosh, we really ruined this thing, didn't we? Right That, that we can't be trusted to execute the plan. And Jesus comes as the exact imprint and representation of God. In him, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were made. The one who holds all things together by the word of his power. That is who comes to let us know the problem and to give us the way out. And the way out is through his body, sacrificed for us. But it doesn't end there. And this is what's crazy to me. It's like I would love to think that that's it. Now we're done. Humans have ruined it. We can't seem to pull it off without also being God. Only one of those guys. And so we're done. Now Jesus, he should just live in this earth in resurrected form and just travel around the world and proclaim things to people. That's what would need to happen. And yet that's not what he does. We all know how Matthew ends. We just finished Matthew this week in our reading plan, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is because now he has resurrected. He has finished, completed what his father has put before him. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does he do? Maybe he's boneheaded, I'm not really sure. What does he do? But he takes all the losers who can't seem to get it right and go, now you guys go and declare this message. You do it. You're my plan. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) You've done it perfectly. We don't even bat our weight. So I'm not sure it's going to work out. But there's been a change, even in how it happens. We see this before his ascension. We read about this in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, is that he leaves his spirit with us so that we can do it. So it's like, you don't even have to do it in your own strength. I'm going to put my spirit within you, which is a mark of the new covenant. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you're going to declare, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In addressing sin through his death, burial, and resurrection, for those who have placed faith in Jesus, they have received his spirit. And in receiving his spirit, they have also been given the same work that that spirit does, which is to go out and to declare and proclaim this message because the Spirit's ministry, as we saw in John, is to shine a spotlight on the person of Jesus because we need to see it. It's not just an abstract concept. It's a person. And so the Spirit's movement gives us clearer understanding of who Jesus is. And so we are Jesus' witnesses. We saw this in, uh, toward the end of the Gospel of John where he would say, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. <laughs> so now, we'll talk about this next week more fully. Now we're the strategy. <clears throat> We've never been able to do it right, and yet we're still the ones God's using. He hasn't used a rock yet. He uses us. God moves. But let's go beyond even Acts 1.8 and the feeling of the Spirit, the declaration on Pentecost and the way they speak about it. Let's, let's get granular. Let's get granular here. Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul, where he is killing Christians. And then, in the killing of Christians decides to head up to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus confronts him there. After he's blinded, he's hanging out, and look at what happens in Acts chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. We've heard that before, haven't we? Send me, here I am, right? Like, the Lord's speaking, somebody's responding. And the Lord said, rise and go. God's always commissioning us. Rise and go to the street called Straight, literally giving him an address. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go. There he is again, making us move. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, not enemy Saul, not persecutor Saul, but brother Saul. Must have been the oddest words to ever come out of Ananias' mouth. Never thought he was going to say it. He woke up that morning confident that his day was going to be rather normal. And all of a sudden, he's going to a persecutor, putting his hands on him so that he can recover his sight and go be a missionary in the greater Roman world. It's quite a day. The highs and lows, I'd like to see how those were. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So we have, if we hear about Abram or Isaiah, like who's going to go to all of these people and declare? And even at the smallest level, God is speaking to Ananias to send him to Saul so that Saul might regain his sight and be commissioned to go into the greater Roman world and declare the message of the cross. Anybody in this room who has faith in Jesus, has trusted him for your sins, has been forgiven and restored, and even if you don't believe it, commissioned, anybody in this room, there were individual people who played a role in that happening. For some of us, it is a preacher or a pastor or a camp speaker. For some of us, it is a message that we've heard that gets us moving in the right direction. For some in other parts of the world, it begins with a dream that sends them to a person. The person tells them the good news. But anybody in this room who has faith in Jesus, there was a person or people involved uniquely and specifically, so that you could be brought into a right relationship with God. This has always been how God responds to the problem that we've created. By moving toward his creation in ways that they can understand to tell them the problem they've gotten themselves into and the solution This has always been the way God has done it. Since sin has entered into this world, he has moved toward his creation, he has declared the problem, and he has provided the solution. Not only that, but as we also see, every single time we have recognized this, it is because God has used people or himself to communicate clearly in language that people understand, in ways that they would recognize. Jesus knew well that this age was coming. He made no anachronistic iPhone messages. 
He didn't talk about computers or the internet. Some people probably think that's not true in the, in the Revelation. Like, no, it's right there. Um, but no, he didn't do that. He used language of the time that people would understand so that they might believe. This is why the work of the sent one, which is all of us, demands comprehension of language and culture and people. We shared the story before of a missionary. His name is Brad, shockingly. Another Brad. He's a good dude. You'd like him. Brad is, uh, was a missionary for years, and um, for years he never talked to the people about Jesus. And you might wonder why. I've shared this story before, and it took years for him to be sure he could rightly comprehend their worldview so that when he spoke to them about Jesus, he didn't give them some kind of funky, syncretistic Jesus where they just go, well, just put him into the group too. <clears throat> and he labored there and lived amongst people, learning a language and learning a culture so that he could finally, <clears throat> at the right moment, declare what they needed to hear. The way that this happened in that culture was, or the way that his end was because this culture had no comprehension of what happened at death. They were always broken up over it distraught. Every time somebody died, they would just break because they didn't have any comprehension, understanding. And Brad would see multiple deaths and funerals before his comprehension of the language and the people was enough that he could say, I know what happened to him. And would you let me talk to you about it? We don't do that kind of work very often. We want to kind of parachute in and speak in English and move along. And we forget that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. That when God saved you, he didn't use a language you didn't comprehend or illustrations that didn't make any sense or a person who didn't care for you. It's not to say he won't use that. God has used that. God's used some people in this room when they're broken English or whatever else or through a translator to see great change. But what did you still need? A translator. You still needed somebody who was going to deliver that news. That's why the work of Bible translation is so important. Cameron Townsend, who was a big part of Bible translation, would say it this way. Uh, the best thing you can give another culture is the Bible in their language because it never takes a day off. Never needs a furlough. Doesn't have to go home. And so the work of Bible translation is of utmost importance, but that requires, maybe even some of you in this room have a knack for language. How might God use that to help people understand the message of Christ's death, burial, resurrection? Always spoke clearly. So God has moved toward us. But along with that, as God has moved, his communication has been clear. And so often we are not even among people enough to be able to communicate to them in ways that they can comprehend. 
some folks, and I have no specific person in mind. It's just kind of a thing. Some people are so afraid of the world like it's going to stick on them. It didn't stick on Jesus. And so they just stay away and like, well, my ministry is just going to be prayer because these pe- pagan people are crazy and I have, no, I have no understanding of how to interact with them. But then you can remember this, right? Because God's done two things. God has moved toward people. I mean, imagine, again, this didn't happen, so we're glad. But imagine the, uh, the son of God, which he would never do because they have, there are not two wills in God, but just going, you know what? Most of these people aren't going to believe in the first place. So if you just do the stats, it's really not even worth it. So run the numbers. It's not worth it for all of this to happen so that a minority of people might believe. No, he fully moved towards sinful people. And that should give us comfort and maybe even embolden us to go across the street and talk with our neighbor who needs a message and give care and invest in them enough that we know what's going on in their life and in their habits and in their stories. To maybe even go to their kids' sporting events or their grandkids' sporting events, to be present in their lives and give them enough of our attention that we could speak to them about things of eternal significance. I mean, think about it. Like, do you think Jesus just woke up every morning and taught from sunup to sundown? There's 30 years of his life. Most of it we don't know about. How much of that was just dealing with the idiocy of the disciples? I mean, we even have the recorded dealings of the idiocy, with the idiocy of the disciples. Imagine all the stuff that doesn't get recorded where John's like, no, nah. right? The spirit just censors it. That was too stupid. So he cuts the line out. Not going to say that one. Not going to throw Peter under the bus again. And when you're spending time with people who don't know the Lord, we talked about it last week, they act like people who don't know the Lord. That shouldn't be stunning. Jesus wasn't stunned by it, burdened by it, broken over it, longing to see restoration, but he wasn't stunned by it. I would encourage you to invest heavily in understanding people. But I would define people as a person. Let's just start right there. Invest heavily in understanding one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. Make one phone call or one text message even this week to schedule one time in the month of June where you could just talk to people. And you buy. Don't make them buy. Sit at a coffee shop. Shit wherever, I, you know, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, like, I'm a Christian, so I eat Chick-fil-A or coffee shop. It's kind of my rule. That's um, how it feels, at least. Like, man, I'm always at Chick-fil-A or coffee shop. And talk to them. But I would encourage you to do this. Only ask them questions about themselves. Like, like oh, don't tell them about you. Just ask them questions about them. How many kids do you have? I, I asked this question one time to a guy I was having uh, breakfast with before he moved. I said, what's one of the most difficult moments you've ever experienced? He was like, uh, in high school, one of my best friends died of a drug overdose. And I was like, well, here we go. The stuff that people will share with you if you're just interested in their lives is rather stunning because most people don't have interested people. Most people, Christians included, just want to talk to you about what's going on with us. 
We have no comprehension of how to talk to people about what's going on with them. That's hard work. It's hard work to actually be interested in somebody because as we've seen by sin in the flesh, we are so selfish. So self-consumed, self-absorbed, only interested in us. Our social media profiles are about us. Very few of us, if anybody's like, hey, this is my neighbor and they're baller. Like, we don't do that. Like, these are my kids, these are my grandkids, this is a cool thing that happened, this is an accomplishment. Um, No one's bragging on people they, they barely know, giving them shine. Why? Because we care mainly about ourselves. That's often our disposition. But if we just start moving toward others in the same way that Jesus moved toward us and demonstrating interest, and don't make it way up here to go, i got to talk to 45 people. No, you just got to talk to one. One person in the month of June, one conversation where you are just fully invested in who they are. You could create five questions, and that might take four hours. Because God moves and God's clear. And we'll see next week how God uses the church to bring his plan about.